Hey, hey, beer fans. Welcome to Experimental Brewing with Denny and Drew. I'm Denny Kahn. And I'm Drew Beecham. Together, we're the authors of Experimental Home Brewing, about science and the pursuit of great beer, and Simple Home Brewing, now available at all your finest retailers. Between the two of us, we have over 50 years of homebrewing experience. I'm the guy known for weird beer and strange ideas. And I'm the guy who's known for questioning the conventional wisdom and finding a way to check it out. And sometimes finding out something that you thought was conventional wisdom and going, oh, wait, no, that's wrong. But we'll get yeah, it that way. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so on today's episode, we're going to cover the news. We're going to go into the brewery and talk about what we've been brewing. And then we're going to get smoky. With our good buddy, Jeff Gladish. Yeah, man, if you guys are into smoked beers uh, and you want to make your own malt to do it with, Jeff is the man. There is no doubt about it. Yes, indeed. But first, a message from our sponsors. This episode of the Experimental Brewing Podcast is brought to you by you, our listeners. Go to experimentalbrew.com to help support us. Click on the Patreon link to donate whatever amount you like to the podcast and our charities. Click on the Brew Your Own Magazine link to subscribe to BYO. Or click on the AHA link to join the American Homebrewers Association. Part of the proceeds from those will go to help support the podcast. And thanks for your support. Hey, thanks for sticking around. We're going to start off with some announcements. Yep, and in our announcements, uh, we're still catching up on getting all the episodes out on a timely basis. My bad. The last episode of The Brew Files was all about, well, still more not beer fermentation, but bread fermentation, as Denny and I sat down with Jeff Renner and talked about how to make really great bread at home from a guy who has way more commercial knowledge about how to do this than anything I know how to do. <laughs> yeah, he uh, he's the man when it comes to bread baking. Yeah, and somehow we've ended up with Jeff's two weeks in a row. I don't know how. But here we are. <laughs> yeah, all right. Well, maybe it has something to do. Jeff's are just extra intelligent. Uh, don't tell them that. They might get their egos up. <laughs> and, of course, now by the time you hear this episode, uh, I guess what, Hop and Brew School will be over, right? Yes, it will. But uh, I'm heading up there in a few days. And uh, I will come back with a report on all the new um, hop info that's out there. It looks like there's some really, really good sessions. Uh, one about uh, lagers and hops. Uh, another one about uh, just general recipe design for uh, IPAs using uh, some of the newer hops. Uh, so I, uh, I'll come back and I'll let you know what I learn. And in the meanwhile, don't forget you can support the podcast by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. You can click the AHA or BYO links on the website and by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or two or more to our charitable cause, which for this part of the year is the National Disaster Search Dog Foundation. These uh, wonderful people uh, rescue dogs from shelters, train them to search for people after disasters. And, you know, I don't know for a fact, but I wouldn't be surprised if some of these dogs were in Maui right now. Uh, unfortunately, there's just way too big a need for this kind of thing. So throw us a few bucks. We will pass it along to the National Disaster Search Dog Foundation, and you can rest assured that your karma has been improved. 
What's better than a dog with a job? <laughs> a dog sitting on your lap. There you go. All right, it's time for us to go have a beer and talk some news. All right, when we come back, we will be over in the pub. See you in a minute. This episode is brought to you by the American Homebrewers Association. Summer is the perfect time to embark on a homebrewing adventure. Join the American Homebrewers Association for one year and receive a free brewing book of your choice to fuel your experience. Discover the pleasure of enjoying your own cold, crisp beer on a sunny day. Plus, get a free book to spark your beer inspiration. So, join the American Homebrewers Association and start tapping into the joys of brewing. Head to homebrewersassociation.org slash experimental for offer details. That's homebrewersassociation.org slash experimental. Belgian yeast from Y-Yeast's culture collection pioneered the way for brewers to create unique beers during the craft beer revolution and grow their popularity to what it is today. Our summer legacy curation highlights four of these strains that have been top specialty yeasts for nearly 40 years. Always available in our activator system that proofs your yeast and shortens lag time are strains 3522 Belgian Ardennes and 3944 Belgian Whitbeer. These proven choices are well suited for many styles, including pales, blondes, doubles, Whitbeers, and Belgian style IPAs. And for a limited time, try our seasonal favorites, 3463 Forbidden Fruit and 3942 Belgian Wheat. No matter what balance of fruity esters and spicy phenolics you prefer, these strains will complement your summer brewing plans now through the end of September. Catch up on our latest blog posts and learn more about this release at yeastlab.com. We're sitting here at the Experimental Brewing Pub at the corner of everywhere and nowhere, somewhere in cyberspace, and we're each having a beer. And uh, as usual, Drew, tell me about yours. Yeah, I'm I'm doing some research. How about we call it that? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I'm having one of my absolute favorite beers in the universe, which is Allagas Curio. And Allagas Curio, for those of you who haven't never had it before, it is a bourbon barrel-aged triple and I say that, and a couple of those words kind of make you roll your eyes, but damn it, it's a fine beer. And hey, actually, it's not more, me, man. Actually, it's more than a fine beer. It's a fan-fantastic <laughs> beer. Um, Ever since I had a uh, Duval aged in a scotch barrel, uh, I've gotten over all that kind of stuff. Yeah, well, I'll tell you, the the thing that with Allagascario, I mean, it's been around for a while now. Um, I mean, what, 15 years, 20 years, something? It was one of the first beers I ever had that made me go, ooh, I need to figure out how I can make something like this. So that gives you an idea how long ago that was. <laughs> um, and, you know, I 
I think I make a pretty good, to use Denny's term, homage to the beer. Um, but there's just something about that Belgian cinnamony spiciness along with the fruitiness, along with the vanilla and the spiciness of the wood from the bourbon barrel, uh, and just that little bit of extra heat that comes in the beer. Uh, they now have this in multiple package formats, so go and give it a taste. Go explore. And they do taste different in the different packages. So that's my uh, my beer for this week, Allagash Curio, Mr. Den. Yeah, man, that sounds really good. I wish I could get it around here. But I am drinking, believe it or not, yet another IPA. This one uh, comes from Cold Fire Brewing, who we have mentioned before. They're here in Eugene, Oregon. And this one is their Henry IPA, named after their mascot, Henry Chameleon. Uh, it's a, a fairly light IPA, Pilsner malt base with just a touch of Carahel. As we know, the guys down there at Cold Fire are on the no-crystal train for making IPAs. Uh, just a touch of Carahel, though, I don't know. Technically, that might be considered crystal, but yeah. I wouldn't tell. Yeah, right. And it's just a touch. Uh, hops are Mosaic, Simcoe, Centennial, and Amarillo. And it's uh, one of those beers that's kind of a, a cross between uh, Pacific Northwest and Juicy. But it is a crystal clear, crisp beer. And right now there's one in the box on its way to Drew. So maybe he can review it later. Yay, my favorite sort of thing. And, <laughs> and, and by the way, dare I say, it sounds like another perfect example of the modern IPA. Yeah, I think so. I, I really do think so. Um, I, I want you to know, too, that I have uh, taken uh, the lesson from Denny Kong uh, to heart. And uh, my last IPA uh, was uh, made with, uh, let me see here, it was Mecca Grade uh, Lamanta. And there was a little bit of Mecca Grade Rye in it. And I've started adding about 5 to 10% sugar to all my IPAs. Because that really, really increases the drinkability. Yeah, I, I don't know about you, but I'm down to my last two cans of Denny Kong. And I'm, uh-huh. and I'm really kind of sitting there going, I don't want to drink them. But at the same time, it's an IPA. They had to be drunk. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I went through the rest of mine last weekend. I had four cans left. We had some friends out. And so uh, we all had one of the last four cans that I had. Oh, and, you know, we totally forgot to tell people. Denny Kong won awards. Oh, how about that? Yes, uh, the Oregon Brewers Guild ran a contest for the best uh, West Coast-style IPA. Uh, there were 80 breweries that entered, and I forget how many beers. Uh, Denny Kong came in second in its category, which was over 6.7%. So that's really fantastic. Uh, Kelsey, who brewed the Denny Kong, had some other beers that uh, finished really well also. But let me tell you, it's pretty darn cool that uh, we came in second place in the best of the West Coast IPAs. Yeah. Now, by the way, I also want to point out that I think they had a limit of three entries per brewery, and yeah. Kelsey entered three beers, and he meddled three times. <laughs> I am not surprised, man. If, if you're in the uh, San Diego area and you have not made it into North Park Brewing, do yourself a favor. You know what? And I was going to mention to you that uh, one of the guys uh, who owns Cold Fire mentioned to me that he's down in San Diego all the time, and North Park is a favorite place of his. So Ta-da. there you go. All right. Well, hey, let's talk about some uh, beer news here and some reading that we've been doing. Uh, I mean, I guess actually two of these three stories aren't really beer news as much as they're beer explorations. 
Uh, one comes from Martin Cornell, uh, who writes Zethophile, and he's one of those guys out there really sort of tackling the problem of beer history being not history. And he wrote up a whole thing in the wake of all the stuff going on with Anchor. And I don't know about you, I, I haven't seen any news about that recently, so it's still up in the air. Um, but he wrote a whole thing about steam beer from a historical perspective, because obviously steam beer nowadays is completely synonymous with Anchor. And, you know, there are all sorts of stories that go with it. And his article basically talked about how back during this period of time, during the, the whole Gold Rush period, steam beer was all along the West Coast, all the way from the Yukon out to Nevada, down here in Southern California where I am. And, you know, really kind of talking about where it was, what it was. And, you know, a lot of people were kind of like, oh, it's lager, but it's not, right? And what I thought was really interesting about it was talking a little bit about, okay, one of the big things is where's the name come from? Right? Why is it steam beer? And obviously, being a beer thing, there's lots of stories, and you got people who talk about steam-powered breweries. The big story and the one that Martin sort of leans on because of some of the documentation he's found is the idea that it came from the carbonation level of the casks uh, from the, of the beer. Because according to what he found, these casks were carbonated to 40 to 60 PSI. Wow. Yeah. Uh, give you Think again, uh, boys and girls, about how you carbonate your kegs. Usually have your kegs at what, like a maximum of 18 psi. Um, so these these casts would have been uh, explosive. Well, you know, I heard that that's one of the places that, or one of the possibilities where the name steam beer came from, yep. because when they tapped the keg, there would be like this little yep. foam coming out of it and a little spray, and people thought that uh, it was like steam. Yeah, well, and that's the that's the explanation that Martin kind of leans towards in favor of. Because, again, there's no real documentation or historical right. evidence that points to it because people didn't take beers that seriously. Go figure. Uh, but the other thing I thought was really, really interesting, and I, I had never heard this before he he pulled it out of the, the archives, was that the way that steam beer was poured, it was a two-pour system. You had steam beer and you had flat beer, and they were made from the same batch. And so these two different casts, you had the steam beer that was highly carbonated, highly effervescent, and then you had the flat beer that was, well, flattish, right? You know, probably petillant, but not completely flat. Right. And so to pour a pint, you'd pour parts of each. So you'd get your nice frothy head and your carbonation from the, the steam beer itself. And then the, the flat beer was what made up the bulk of your glass. And so I thought this was really, really cool. It's just a sort of a, a more absurd, ancient, well, ancient's probably the wrong word, old uh, pouring technique in order to actually get yourself sort of a uniform beer. So wow. I had never heard that before. And Martin's, Martin had dug it out of a bunch of articles and, and whatnot in the newspapers. He also had uh, one of my great resources I have is 100 Years of Brewing, which is this old, old American brewing history book written by a bunch of breweries. Uh, and the book is big enough and heavy enough that you could use it to sort of stop an intruder. <laughs> <laughs> but again, if you're curious at all about the history of steam beer and at least some of what the historical record shows us, we'll include a link to Martin's uh, post at Zethophile so you can actually see what can be seen or at least what he's found so far. So in light of Anchor and all the stuff about historic uh, nature of steam beer, I thought it was kind of good to see, you know, 
some actual advertisements and documentation. Right. Exactly. All right. Denny, you, you love provoking people. <laughs> well, I don't know if that's exactly it, uh, uh, but I certainly do provoke people a lot. Yep. So Charlie Bamford, the Pope of Foam, well-known beer guy, lots of time in, in grade, lots of knowledge, more knowledge than I've ever had in my brain. Um, he wrote a piece that <laughs> is literally titled, Provocation. Prolonged maturation of beer is of unproven benefit. So that sounds like a very academic way of going, y'all are full of it. You know, I would say it's more uncertain than unproven because some people prove it by liking the beer better that's been aged. Right. Well, and so there's a couple of comments in that, or a couple of quotes I pulled from the article because I thought they were um, in line with some of the things I've thought in the past and some interesting uh, stuff from Charlie. Especially uh, this first sentence. Yeah. Approaches to brewing are suffused with dogmatic insistence that certain techniques are unequivocally linked to the delivery of quality products. Uh, I think that's a fancier way of saying what I've said a lot, which is that <laughs> people do a lot of this stuff unthinkingly. Um, amongst these belief sets is the uh, perseverance with prolonged maturation or conditioning times post-fermentation. Historically, the justification for these lagering techniques was to allow the settling of solids, carbonation, flavor maturation, and removal of chills haze entities. As science and technology has advanced, it is unequivocally the case that solids and chill haze precursors can be dealt with in short order and without the need for lengthy treatments. Um, in other words, what Charlie is saying is, sure, this might have been the case in the past, but these days we have science on our side, and we can do things with new techniques and new processes to make it so that you don't actually have to wait for everything to settle out and clear out. Right? Filtration, yada, yada, yada. Remember, Charlie's background way back in the day was as sort of a brewing director for Carling. So he's got a lot of industrial lager experience behind him. Not, uh, you know, not just UC Davis and not now. Well, he's at Sierra Nevada now. Um, yeah. and, and let me just point out here real quickly that the key word there is industrial yep. experience. Uh, some of the things that he talks about may not really be applicable or possible for home brewers. Yep. Well... So I do, I do think it's interesting that you get down to the end of the article, and he includes a, a line in there. It says, In the absence of strong evidence to the contrary, my opinion would coincide with those of Hashimoto et al. from the 1960s, that no single flavor component affects flavor change during lagering, and no benefit in taste was derived from prolonged lagering. And, of course, he also goes on to say, because he is a scientist, that he is perfectly willing to see other evidence and accept that things might change if he's given appropriate information. Um, but I did think it was interesting just to see Charlie out there kind of uh, uh, thumbing his nose at some of the, the some of the things we say, at least at the yeah. large scale. Uh, well, and, and, and again, this has to do with industrial scale brewing. Um, and while the basic principles might apply to home brewing, um, that doesn't mean, I mean, you know, are you going to set up a filter to start filtering your beer as opposed to just letting it sit longer? Or using gel uh, or World Vlog or... Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm not going to do that stuff. I mean, again, if you want to, uh, as far as what he says about the debate or the uh, benefits being uncertain, um, you know, if you think you're getting a benefit, then go for it. <laughs> it's like, you know, placebo pills. You see people who are cured when they're given placebo pills, and it's like because they thought that they were going to be cured. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, again, this is a hobby. 
You do the yeah. thing. You do the things that that bring you enjoyment because the enjoyment's not just in the quality of the beer. We know this, right? You yeah. Know, it, it, the, so much of the enjoyment about brewing your own beer is in the tinkering, in the messing around, in the processes that you decide make a difference, in the fact that you go and you light incense outside your garage before you brew. Well, and some of us do. <laughs> yeah. 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 And others of us don't. Yes. And, and people would be people who hadn't heard us told the story before would probably be surprised at which one of us is. Yeah. Um, but no, again, I just like the that very first line in, in in Charlie's article here, you know, about approaches to brewing are suffused with dogmatic insistence. <laughs> it's a very classy yeah. way of saying things. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, all you have to do is spend 10 minutes on Facebook looking at the brewing groups, and you can see that over and over again. Mm-hmm. So, there you go. Now, again, apropos of nothing, as Denny, as Denny has said, that, you know, Charlie is looking at this from a large picture point of view of people who have large capital investments. But I do think it's important to sort of sit there and look at what Charlie is saying from a point of view of, again, what we've talked about, which is learn what works for you. And don't just insist that, well, that's what somebody told me I had to do. Right. That's what I was about to say here. The most important point is to know why you're doing what you do. Uh, I just saw a long discussion on Facebook about with a guy asking about what temperature should he do a diacetyl rest for an ale. <laughs> He was so into the fact that you need to do a diacetyl rest for every beer that he almost could not be convinced that there's no need for a diacetyl rest when you're fermenting at ale temperatures. Yep, it's true. So as long as your beer gets clear, go for it. Yep. All right. So very last uh, little bit here, I think somewhat appropriate given that you're about to go to Hop and Brew School in a couple of minutes here. Um, by a couple, I mean a couple of days. <laughs> um, the uh, article published, uh, actually, oddly enough, in the Central Central Oregon Daily, although about German hop fields. You work that out on your own. Um, <laughs> and they they were literally talking about how there are now hop farms where in Germany where they are planting the hops in conjunction with solar panels, uh, and. Okay, one is, okay, well, that's interesting from a point of view of trying to gain additional power, right? That makes sense. But the article that goes on here in Halatau, they're talking about that this was all set up basically to try and explore whether or not they could do something like using solar panels to deal with increasing temperatures to protect the plants. And, yeah, like trying to look at different things like, okay, can we do green energy generation and get an agricultural benefit from it? Uh, And they chose hops to do this with because, well, Holotow, but also because of how sort of weirdly sensitive hops are. Um, so I thought this was interesting just to see, like they're talking about, um, you know, like using it with growing corn in Tanzania, what happens over in the UK with increasing temperatures or changing weather patterns. And, you know, just a, a different take on how to actually try and address some potential things that we're seeing going on in the atmosphere, like I just had a hurricane. Um, <laughs> so, I don't know, what did you think, Dan? Like, the one thing I, uh, I, I got confused by was, like, I was thinking about, like, how a hop, hop farm gets strong. And for those who have never been in a hop farm, you know, basically they're giant telephone poles going, on, you know, in rows, and then the, the hops are trying to grow up those telephone poles and across wires go up high. Um, and so I was 
I was really curious, like trying to think, okay, wait, how do the solar panels fit in here? What do they do? Where are they? Um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, again, I thought it was interesting to see just as a different technique for you know, dealing with potential climate change and you know, changing temperatures and changing weather patterns. Uh, and also, hey, you know, uh, more power. Yeah, right. You know, I, it's uh, really a great combination. I've been seeing a lot of the same kind of thing happening, like with parking lots and stuff like that. But, you know, we're talking hops now. Yeah, well, I mean, my, my wife's school has solar panels over the whole parking field. You know, like the whole giant parking lot where the students right. and the staff park. It's covered with solar panels. See, uh, you know, Sierra Nevada, famously, they basically the first thing they do after they build a new brewery building is chunk the roof full of solar panels. You know, so I mean, <laughs> there is a, there is a thing here. So it's just interesting to see that go and apply into agricultural now too. So we'll see we'll see what happens with it. I'm kind of curious. <laughs> yeah, really. I mean, uh, it's uh, it's something that somebody's trying. Uh, who knows where it'll go? There you go. All right, let's finish these. And let's go brew. All right. We'll see you in the brewery in just a minute. The next generation of countertop home distillation systems is here. The all-new Air Still Pro from Still Spirits is a revolutionary still that will look right at home alongside your everyday kitchen appliances. This small-batch two-in-one distillation system operates in either pot still or reflux mode and allows you to craft high-quality light and dark spirits at home. No hoses, no complicated assembly, just plug-and-play. The Airstill Pro column cools itself with a built-in high-powered fan. The Still Spirits Airstill Pro is available now at your favorite homebrew retailer. Learn more about the Airstill Pro at stillspirits.com or check them out on Instagram, Facebook, or YouTube. Getting accurate measurements of your beer is one of the keys to improving your brewing. The Pro Series Hydrometers from Brewing America will help you help your beer. These American-made NIST traceable hydrometers are accurate, easy to read, and the kits come with a cleaning brush and cloth and a borosilicate test flask that uses half the sample size of most flasks. That means less beer for testing and more beer for you. Brewing America is a small, family-owned business of husband and wife veterans, so when you buy a Brewing America hydrometer, you're not only getting a great piece of equipment, you're supporting the people who support America. Brewing America hydrometers are available on Amazon or at www.brewingamerica.com. Welcome to the brewery. This is where we do the dirty deeds that we do. Uh, Drew's is that an ACDC song? <laughs> well, you know, uh, what can I say? Um, Drew's going to tell you about what he's been up to. Right. So, y'all remember I've talked before about the 50th anniversary beer project because next year is the 50th anniversary of the Maltos Falcons. And 
gearing up for Southern California Homebrewers Festival and actually making a 50th anniversary bar full of beers that we're known for or beers that the club is proud of. And so right now, since SCHF is, what, May, early May? We've still got some time, so we're focused on all the big beers at the moment. But we've knocked down three different beers uh, in the last month. We knocked down the brownie wine, a.k.a. brown barley wine, that we brewed before in 10 years ago with Firestone Walker. Good Lord. And this year we actually did it again, but instead of doing it up on their big plant up there in Paso Robles, we went and we did it down here in uh, Venice where they had the Firestone Walker Propagator, which is sort of their pilot brewery. So if you've had 805 Cerevesia and and all those, uh, those came out of Venice originally. We did that with the Firestone Walker Propagator and 20 barrels of brownie wine at like, I want to say the original gravity was somewhere around 1140. So big dang beer. And it's going to get aged for a little while in various barrels. But we also took a five-gallon share home, and that's being homebrewed uh, right now in a glycol fermenter with another one of our members. So that will be there. That's done. We also did a beer that's called the Heart. Uh, this one's always a mouthful. Heart of the Darkness of the Forest. <laughs> that's going to be a big label. Oh, yeah. And it's a, a Russian Imperial Stout, so that's now going, getting ready. That's going to get a little bit of barrel aging time as well. And then finally, one of the ones I was really excited to see happening was our Hashel 10, which is kind of a Belgian quad, Belgian dark strong ale. And that's brewed by MB Rains, who I've often credited for the amount of yeast knowledge I have. And uh, also brewed during the hurricane or tropical storm or disappointing rainstorm. Take your pick. Um, and so big, messy, big, messy recipe. I'm going to include uh, links to all the recipes as I can, uh, in the show notes, but I'm getting really, really excited to see this actually starting to move. And then of course, as we get closer and closer to Southern California homebrews festival, it's going to suddenly be time to like go, Hey, we're going to make an IPA. I got to make my cream ale or a Saison or something like that. So there's going to be a lot of like last minute little things. And I got to figure out how we're going to present this stuff. So it's kind of special. It's not just the beer. It should just be all about like celebrating the idea of like, holy crap, we've somehow made 50 as a bunch of weird people who make beer. <laughs> I may have to come down for that. You're more than welcome to, buddy. It's a fun time. Yeah, really. I might even join the club. What the hell? Why not? I mean, hey, you came down for the 45th anniversary, but just not for the yeah. Southern California Herbers Fest side of it. Yeah, right. Um, that 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 involves camping in a tent, and I don't do that. Well, no, there, there's shuttles to a hotel. Oh, oh, well, hey, now and, that's totally different. And the last time, I I actually uh, rented one of the cabins they have on site. Right. And so, yeah, that was kind of nice. Um, <laughs> so the California <laughs> Homebrewers Festival, calhomebrewers.org. Don't miss it. It's going to be a time. Um, this one I actually wanted to talk about real quick because this was a topic that I think is going to become – nearer and dearer to a lot of people's wallets. And it was a conversation that happened on the AJ forum where Denny and I both hang out. Denny, I think is on there pretty much 19 hours a day. (laughs) Um, Maybe 18 and a half. Yeah. But there was a question that popped up and it fueled a whole discussion about, Hey, I just went and got myself a sack of two row. And, you know, given how prices of things are increasing, yada, 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 how can I make it last longer? Right. Uh, of course, the very first realization is, uh, well, you, brewery mechanics are brewery mechanics. You can't really stretch malt and expect to get the same thing. Right. Right. Um, and so 
let's talk a couple a couple of the ideas that popped up in that thread. Uh, I think all of these are going to rotate around. Daniel, you were saying before we start rolling, uh, you ain't making the beer you're thinking you're making. Yeah, right. Uh, you know, sure you can you can stretch a, gr- a bag of malt, but if you want to make the kind of beer you were making before you tried to stretch that bag of malt, it's just not going to happen. So you got to be creative with your recipes, and you got to be willing to uh, try different things that you haven't done before. Yeah, and so some of the ideas that came out of the thread uh, change your focus. Start making sessionable beers, right? Because obviously, you know, you can make a lot more. Bitter, you know, at say 1040, then you can IPA at say 1060, 1070. Um, yeah, right. It goes, it goes a little bit further, but to Denny's point, those are very different beers. Um, so making uh, making it more sessionable beers, uh, doing what a lot of professional breweries have done in the past, using adjuncts like sugar and corn and rice and all that. But again, different beer. Right. Yeah. Um, one other thought I had, and I, I hadn't contributed this in the thread yet, was if part of the concern is about wanting to stretch your base malt farther, but still wanting a lot of character out of it, take a look at supplementing what's the malt that you're using with something that's more flavorful, right? So if you've got a bunch of two-row, you can use that to provide the bulk of your sugar, and then maybe you use a little bit of Marisot or a little bit of Munich or something. Oh, wait, 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 wait. I got to stop you here, man. <laughs> Turo and Maris Otter are merely malt varieties. Yes, I right? know, I know. You know what I mean. Pale Turo. Pale that, ale malt. That's Good right. Lord. Pale, that, no, man, I, I expect you to be precise. Yes, but most people will just say Turo. Anyway. Well, we're not most people, are we? Uh-huh. <laughs> and most people would say, thank God for that. Yeah. <laughs> so, Pale Turo... Pale ale malt or Pilsner malt, uh, you know, as your base, because usually that's going to be the cheapest stuff you can find, right? And then supplement it with malts that have more character. So Maris Otter, Munich, you know, give it a little bit more bump. Dare I even say to Denny's Delight, maybe even a crystal, little bit of Crystal. Crystal, yeah. yeah. Again, different beer, but it will also allow you to stretch and get a little bit further and still get some more character. And actually, if you combine some of those techniques while also using a cheap adjunct like, say, sugar... You could probably even still also get somewhere in your booze category, but don't worry about the booze so much. Worry about the flavor. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is this is a perfect opportunity to get into say brewing Belgian style beers where sugar is pretty much a given, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but again, you know, if you want to keep on brewing that same hazy IPA that you've been brewing before then you're just going to have to come to grips with the fact that there's really nothing you can do that's going to make it the same beer and use less malt. Yeah, although even with hazies, you know, I mean, one thing that people should probably look at is actually going and paying attention to the shell hammer limit and all that sort of fun stuff. Don't don't keep jamming additional hops in there if you're just going to waste them. Yeah, so, exactly, exactly. But, but that's not the malt. Um, well, no, but you can save money overall on brewing that then can go to pay for your malt. There you go. Now, one last thing that did pop up in that thread, and I know it was important to you, was we had people go, oh, I just buy my grain from my brewery. Right. And, uh, you know, and and you can certainly do that. Um, My club has done that for a number of years. But let me tell you, the distributors hate it, and your local homebrew shop hates it. Uh Actually, we have now started going through our local homebrew shop because he can give us the same kind of deal that we were getting going through a brewery 
and we're keeping him in business so that uh, he'll be there when we need him. So really think, think about that. Take that into account. Is it false economy to save a few bucks on a bag of grain if it uh, means that your local homebrew shop is going to be suffering? Well, and take it from me. I mean, I just lost the, the closest homebrew shop I have to me, Monrovia. So in the last, what, five years? No, the last four years, I've lost the two closest homebrew shops to me. They've shut down. And so here we go. You know, it's like, yeah, make sure you make sure you spend some money with those who will actually support you. Um, so yeah, right. So go and go and look at that. Sometimes sometimes it's better to to spend your pounds than be uh, penny wise. Right. Exactly. Exactly. All right. And then Denny, you have a story about yeast. Yeah. Um, you might have heard me say in the past that I'm not a big fan of co-pitching, uh, say, two different yeast strains at the same time. Because there's so much uncertainty about which one will dominate. Well, I decided it was time to find out if uh, my theory had any validity whatsoever. And, you know, that theory is based on past usage. I had recently uh, made a uh, Belgian IPA and pitched one pack of 3522, uh, the Ardennes, and one pack of 3787, the, uh, I think they call it Trappist High Gravity. It's, it's really West Mall yeast. Uh, and that IPA turned out really, really nicely. I've been drinking a lot of uh, North Coast Prankster because it's kind of like uh, a slightly lower alcohol, 7.6%, uh, Belgian-style beer. And I thought maybe I'd try and make something like it. I uh, didn't really have any clues about the recipe. So uh, I just put together a bunch of stuff. Uh, let me see. I used uh, Pills malt, I used wheat malt, and I used rye malt. And I decided I would try the co-pitching thing again because uh, uh, North Coast List Prankster is using uh, uh, different yeast strains. So I co-pitched them again, and I got totally different results. Whereas on the IPA, there was just a really, really nice balance of flavors from the two yeasts. Uh, on this new beer, it was a total banana bomb uh, to the point where I don't know if I'm going to be able to drink it. It's going to have to sit for a while, no matter what Charlie says. Uh, it's going to have to sit for a while and see if it comes around because, it, you know, if, if you're a Hef fan, you'd like this. Uh, I, I'm not, and I really don't. But the point is, number one, that just because it worked once, it doesn't mean it's going to work again. And uh, it confirmed my previous experience of getting different results uh, from different uh, instances of co-pitching. And it also makes me come back to the thing that I always say, which is that this is a data point, not an experiment, not a scientific conclusion. So, you know, you want to be careful about trying to draw conclusions from things without repeated trials, because that's where science comes from. But uh, what it really says to me is I'm going to have to try this one more time (laughs) to see what happens. But again, that's what science is. It's not somebody, you know, making a beer and another beer and saying, oh, yeah. This one did this, so it's definitely th- that it works this way. Uh-uh, it don't work like that. These are data points. Data points can be very valid in uh, 
further exploration in search of a conclusion. But they are data points and not a conclusion. And don't forget the writing down. The writing down is an important <laughs> part of science. That's right. We learned that from Mythbusters, huh? Yeah. So what what do you attribute the difference to, or do you not have a, a, a possible attribution? I, I, don't, I don't have a clue. I mean, there were two different recipes. There's no doubt about that. But the pitching rate and the fermentation schedule was exactly the same on both of them. Uh, both of them used two fairly new packs of yeast, you know, so it wasn't like one yeast was really old and out of it. Mm-hmm. So I just don't know what to say. I mean, you know, this beer fermented at 63 to 65 degrees, so it's not like the temperature went crazy and turned it into a banana bomb, but, you know, I just don't get it. I agree. Uh, but uh, again, this is where sometimes being a homebrewer comes with great flexibility, but sometimes great flexibility comes with a complete and total lack of control. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, so, you know, I, I guess my, my thing is that, you know, if you try something and it seems to be a good thing, make sure you try it a few more times to see if it really is. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. A single data point is useful, but it's not indicative. Uh-huh. <laughs> All right. Well, hey, that's enough uh, brewing nonsense. And don't forget, if you have brewing things that you want to talk about or things that you want to share with us, uh, let us know at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. But now it's time to get smoky. That's right. We're going to be right back talking to Jeff Gladish. The ultimate all-in-one electric home brewing system is here. The new Grainfather G40 can produce up to 11 gallons of beer and features all the latest advancements in home brewing technology, including wireless control so you can monitor your brew day from the Grainfather app. With an innovative new grain basket design that improves workflow, reaching mash efficiencies of 75% or more is easy. The 3300-watt heating element brings your wort to a boil quickly without any scorching, and the large hop plate filter guarantees that no unwanted grain matter or hop tube reaches your fermenter. Every G40 comes standard with a high-powered built-in pump that can handle temperatures over 200 degrees Fahrenheit and a full three-year warranty that guarantees that you will be able to keep on brewing no matter what. The new Grandfather G40 is available now at your favorite homebrew retailer or online at grandfather.com. done brewing, I want to be done brewing, not waiting around for my wort to cool. With the Hydra, the Corny Pillar, and the other great chillers from Jaded, I can be done when I'm done. No more waiting 20 minutes for the wort to cool enough to add whirlpool hops. No more messing with cleaning and sanitizing counterflow or plate chillers. With the super fast immersion chillers from Jaded, you can chill your wort in minutes without all the hassle. Jaded chillers aren't just works of art. They're the fastest, most effective chillers you can buy. Check them out at jadedbrewing.com.
decided it was time to get into some smoked beer info. So we got a hold of a friend who knows probably as much about home brewing with smoked malt and making your own smoked malt as anybody out there, uh, Jeff Gladish. Yeah. Jeff has won multiple awards for his smoked beers. He's made smoked malt for commercial breweries, and he makes a lot of smoked malt at home. So what better way to figure out how to get smoky than to talk to Jeff? And by the way, it's not as hard as you might think. <laughs> yeah, really. So sit back, grab a beer, unless you're driving, and take a listen to Drew talking to Jeff. I was looking back through journals. I have like three or four books since I started brewing and uh, looked at all the original smoke beers that I used to make back 25 years ago, 30 years ago. It was kind of interesting. <laughs> well, I was going to say, how long have you been brewing them? Since 1991. 91. All right. Yeah. See, now, this this makes two podcasts in a row where Danae and I have talked to somebody who has been brewing longer than we have. Because mm-hmm. uh, the, the one that is coming out as we're speaking is with Jeff Renner. And, of course, oh, I, yeah? I think Jeff's cool. been brewing just about longer than almost everybody in the hobby. Yeah, he was one of the original homebrew heroes that uh, came to the Sunshine Challenge way back in the day in the mid-90s, I think. Uh, all right, well, then, hey, so, Jeff, tell everybody who you are. I am Jeff Gladish. I'm a, a homebrewer. I've been brewing since 1991. I'm uh, recently retired from the uh, car-fixing business, and uh, my current job is selling all the crap I collected over the last 37 years on eBay. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny what happens. You, you you have something like a garage, and you sort of hoard parts, and the next thing you know, you got to figure out what to do with them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I filled up a, a ten by fifteen foot storage spot, and uh, it's close to my house. So I, if I sell something, I can run over and package it up and ship it out. So. There you go. From from <laughs> fixer of things to provider of fixing of things. Yeah, and, it's more. In, it's an inventory based um, job as opposed to a personality based job. <laughs> Now the worst thing is you scrape your you scrape your knuckles on a uh, tape dispenser as opposed to a wrench. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> um, all right. Well, hey. So you just said uh, you started brewing 1991 or so. How yeah. did you get involved in brewing back in 1991? Oh man, I've always been interested in, in beer, um, and uh, I think uh, what set it off was my friend who lived in England at the time uh, brought me over a kit. One of those uh, cans with mm-hmm. a, a little package of yeast on the top of it. It was called uh, Dog Bolter Bitter, <laughs> and I made that. And, uh, and from then on, I was I, I went through I guess two more kits and then started going into all grain. So, so it didn't take much. And I will remind people to set the context. You're in Tampa, in, in, yeah. in Florida, and back in the '90s, uh, Florida was a wasteland of beer. There was no such thing. It's true. You were here, weren't you? <laughs> I was for a little while. <laughs> yeah, there you couldn't get any decent beer here. Um, so, as a matter of fact, they had rules in Florida that you couldn't put beer into bottles that weren't either 16 or 32 ounces. So all the European beers that came in odd sizes uh, were not allowed, were not even legal in the state of Florida. And uh, they didn't change that until... I think the uh, late 80s or early 90s. Uh, I think my favorite was still the weird growler rule where you can't have a 64-ounce growler because people might drink it in the car, but it will sell you 128 ounces. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. 
we'll sell you, we'll sell you as big as you want over 32 ounces, but you know, nothing less than that unless it was 12. Yeah. 12, 12 or 16. The rule, I think that what, what, um, that came about because there was a, a brewery, Miller was going to uh, open up a big brewery in, in, um, Jacksonville. And, um, then they reneged on it. They decided to go to Georgia instead. And at the time, Miller was making beer and uh, uh, putting those little eight-ounce bottles out. They're really cute little bottles, clear Miller bottles. And um, to spite Miller, they said, okay, no more eight-ounce bottles. <laughs> yep. We're just going to, you know, you're only allowed to have 16-ounce or 32-ounce. Yeah, it's, it's great times, fun times when politics and beer mix. Um, yeah. But that's not why we're here to discuss. We're here to discuss the whole smoked beer thing. Um, now I've talked about smoked beer before on the podcast with Devin Randall, but I love smoked beers and I know they're sort of controversial. And for people who haven't been around the hobby for a long period of time, yes, people used to argue whether or not something was beer, beer, if it wasn't, you know, what they thought was beer, beer well before the hazies ever hit the market. So these arguments have always happened and smoked beer has always been incredibly divisive. Yeah. People either love it or they really, really hate it. Yeah, I wouldn't call that divisive. I would just say that's a preference, you know. <laughs> so. well, I tell people, oh, yeah, you know, I like a good rock beer. And they're, and they're like, eh, why? <laughs> Wait, you, you like drinking barbecue? <laughs> well, you have the same thing with uh, competitions and, and smoked beers as well. You know, hopefully you'll get uh, a judge that actually likes, you know, smoked beers when you enter it. Because if you don't, then you're going to get some really bad comments, um, you know. There's, and then I, I was looking through notes today in my old, um, brewing log. And, uh, one note would say, you know, when I entered into a competition, way too much smoke. And the other one would say, I could buy a case of this. And it's like, okay, well, there's two different people judging my beer here. Which one's right? Well, never forget, you can have two judges and three opinions. Right. <laughs> so true. what got you into smoke beer? A friend of mine uh, uh, has relatives in uh, Nuremberg, Germany, and uh, brought me back a Schlenkerla Urbach um, one day in the mid-90s, I guess it was. And uh, I just loved that beer. I thought that was the, the most it, – it, it woke me up. I mean, this, this was so smoky. Even the empty glass after I finished it smelled like smoke. And I was just this, – this is phenomenal. I need to make – you couldn't buy one here, so I, I decided I'd try to make that. All right. Uh, Schengler, the, the famous one from Bomberg, which is, of course, the home of all the, the German Rauschbier thing. Um, right. And, yeah, I've had people describe it as basically a fireplace in a glass, a barbecued ham sandwich in a glass. It is intense, and I think they have an old saying where it's like, you know, the, the first glass is too much, and by the time you get to the third glass, it's just right. Right, right. I think that's. I think part of their motto is that you won't really enjoy smoked beer until the third one, something like that. <laughs> so now, given that you started from that German beer perspective, what are your favorite styles to play with smoking? Are they, are you very traditionalist here? Or are you like doing that Merzen and that Bach and? Well, um, I I think they work better in in most lagers. Um, my most recent smoked beer was uh, a Pilsner style. And it really didn't smoke any of the malt in it. I just used the slurry from my previous smoked beer, which was uh, uh, an Oktoberfest style, fest beer style. Um, but th- that was kind of fun. I've, I've made um, 
porters before. I made a braggot that did really well back in the day, a smoked braggot. Hmm. And, uh, that was, that was kind of interesting. I got, uh, I got a third place in the nationals with that We, you know, 25 years ago. <laughs> and trying to think, because uh, braggot itself is already a weird enough crit- critter. And then you throw smoke in on top of that. And yeah, yeah that could be really, that could also fit into the definition of a divisive. <laughs> yes, yes, it's true. I think I, the only thing I try to avoid is, with uh, smoke beers is anything too bitter. They don't seem to go very well with bitter styles. Um, so I, I like to use um, smoke in maltier styles mm-hmm. like uh, porters or, you know, you know, most of the lagers. And uh, they seem to work a lot better. Well, and I think I'm trying to remember. Yeah, I usually also don't like the combination of smoke and other phenols. Um, right. So, like, I, I, I very rarely have ever seen a smoke beer, I think, that works with, like, a very uh, spice-forward yeast. You know, so, like, right. thing like, so I don't like think, a, I don't a think I've ever tried that. You know, I, you know, I, I make a – one of my uh, um, beers that I make frequently is a, a wit beer, and I don't think I've ever tried it with smoke malt. That, I don't, you're right. I think that that would probably be a bad idea. <laughs> it, it it just it starts to get muddled and confused and too too much of much or as I think the kids yeah. said today it's extra extra <laughs> and now of course that I've said that the kids will no longer say it um so you you prefer to go for maltier styles now we've talked in the past about commercial smoked malts and like the most common ones that you can get are the the Roush malt you know so the Beechwood smoked malt. And then also uh, peat smoked malt. My usual rule of thumb is don't use peatwood smoked malt ever. <laughs> right. I, it, it doesn't. The only the only beer I ever had uh, that I liked that used some peat smoke, uh, peatwood smoke, or peat smoke. Yeah, it's not wood. Was, it's uh, peat. <laughs> yeah, it's not wood. Um, but it was uh, a strong scotch ale that just had, must have had like 1%. Because you could tell it was there and it added a little bit of complexity to it. But I think any more than then a very minimal amount is just too much for me. It, it's too too phenolic. Yeah. And Stone Smoked Porter used to use uh, peat smoke malt in it as well. But again, it was also like a ridiculously tiny amount. Huh. Um, so yeah, don't use peat, peat malt. No. An, <laughs> leave it to the whiskey. <laughs> um, now for the, the Beechwood malt, and of course there are, some, uh, there are other alternatives as well, like Brees makes a cherrywood malt. Right. Uh, and there are smaller molsters that are doing things with like hickory and oak and all that. Lots of lots of little commercial examples to try. But with that Bamberg malt, that Roush malt uh, with mm-hmm. Beechwood, where do you like to dial your smoke level at? Because you always hear people say, oh, you can use 100%. And other people are going, oh, that's way too much. Do like 10. Well, that's, that's where, you know, smoking your own malt comes in because you really have no idea how old that malt is um, that you're buying from the homebrew supply store. I mean, nobody buys an entire sack of smoked malt from uh, from uh, Bomberg. Well, I don't think they do. And maybe if you're a commercial brewery, but no home brewer would. So, you know, if if you don't know the origin or the age of the smoked malt that you're buying, you don't really have any idea what intensity it's going to give you. Uh, when I used to buy smoked malt, I would use it at about 20 to 40 percent, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, I had pretty good results. But sometimes it wasn't smoky enough, and sometimes it was too smoky. So if you if you're smoking your malt on your own at home, you gotta you can use it fresh 
and potent. And when I do that, I try not to go much more over, you know, 25, 30%. All right. Well, then perfect segue into the topic at hand, smoking your own malt. It, it is funny to me that there seems to be a, a very large overlap between people who brew beer and people who barbecue slash smoke. Huh. <laughs> like, yeah. So some, somehow these seem to be primitive arts that are, that are good. <laughs> <laughs> Man, fire, beer. <laughs> exactly. Um, uh, well, I mean, you, you have to admit, for human beings, there is a, uh, there does seem to be a built in attraction to that whole idea of, of fire and smoke. Um, safety, evolution, who knows? Right. Um, but for you doing, uh, doing the malt, first off, if I'm guessing correctly, and I'm trying to remember back way back in the day when, when, when we interviewed you for Homebrew All Stars, um, right. it's all cold smoked, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, when I first started, I, I didn't know about cold smoking and, uh, I was using, you know, hot coals and hickory. And, uh, you know, I, I was fairly successful, but when you're doing that, you, there's several things you have to be aware of. I mean, it, I, I, I read in the, um, smoked beer book by Ray Daniels and, uh, Jeff, uh, Larson, is mm-hmm. it? Yep. Um, they, um, they said that if you're going to use hot smoke, uh, from a charcoal grill on your grains, then you should probably let it sit for a week to off gas, you know, and, right. and, uh, I don't, remember ever having done that when I was, you know, cooking the, uh, the malt over smokers, but with, uh, with cold smoking, uh, you don't need to do that. You can, you know, you can dial it, you can use it fresh. So that's what I've been doing. Right. And so just set it up for those who don't necessarily have their own smoking apparatus. What, when we're talking about cold smoke, like what sort of temperature are we talking about? Um, maybe 10 degrees hotter than ambient. Um, so, you know, so what I've got is a box that I uh, have shelves in and the shelves have screen bottoms. You, uh, slide the shelves in with the grain, you know, in, in the shelves about a half inch or an inch thick, seal up the box. And then 20 feet away from that connected with uh, a four inch dryer duct tube, you know, aluminum tube. I've got the, the, uh, Weber grill with the smoke in it. So by the time the smoke gets from the hot charcoal grill, you know, 15, 16 feet away to the box, it's, it's pretty, pretty cool. I thought about, you know, making some modifications to it, like putting a sprinkler underneath the, uh, (laughs) the uh, tube to make it cooler. But, you know, it's really not necessary. Yeah. And and of course I suspect that the picture that we're going to use for this episode is going to be the picture of, the very sort of Rube Goldbergian uh, smoking apparatus yeah. that you just described. It's intense. Yeah. It still works. It still works fine. You know. <laughs> now, the, now, granted, obviously, as you said in the intro, you, you know, you came from a very practical uh, background, fixing cars and and whatnot, and so it makes sense that you have this sort of homemade rig. These days, I mean, I can go down to my hardware store and I could buy something that claims to have like an offset cold smoke gizmo. Oh yeah, you can you can make something like this with cold smoke with a cardboard box, I think. And, and but I, I I like my thing. Um, actually, this um, the, the original box that I still use was uh, made by a friend of mine who's since moved up to uh, uh, Wisconsin or Minnesota or something, and uh, you know he left it with me. 
<laughs> so I've modified it a few times, but it's pretty much the same box that he made, you know, using crude tools and implements. All right. And so we got a box, we got screen, we got airflow. Now let's talk the malt first. What do you, what sort of malts are you smoking? Are you looking for anything in particular about the malt that you're using? Or is it just like, well, I was going to use that in a beer recipe anyway. Now I'm just going to add smoke to it. Um, well, the thing about, you know, a cold smoking malt, you can use whatever malt you want because it's not going to change the color much. It's not going to change the characteristic of the malt much. Mm-hmm. So most of the time, the malt that I use in the recipe that's smoked is Munich malt. I use like the dark wireman malt. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes I'll use just regular uh, two row domestic or sometimes I'll use Pilsner malt. But uh, those are the malt. I usually smoke the base malts of the recipe and use that as a percentage. And I think it's important. You said it doesn't change the color and also the base characteristics. And I think it's important to recognize that part of that means it doesn't change the enzymatic level. That's true because it's cool. I mean, it's, it never gets much above uh, 90 degrees when I'm even in Florida when, when well, if it's 85 out in the summer and you're smoking, it might get up to 95 inside the box. (laughs) All right. Um, so we get good fresh malt. I think good fresh malt's always imperative in a lot of this stuff. Um, now I've read a lot of things in the past of people doing like, oh, you got to get your grains slightly wet, wet, or miss them or something in order to make the smoke stick. Do you do anything like that? Uh, the only time I've done that was with um, uh, was on a request from um, a brewery up in Gainesville um, that that wanted me to make. They were going to make a ten barrel batch of smoked beer. And I was smoking the malt for them. So I smoked three sacks of malt for them in my smoker. It took all afternoon, but uh, they wanted, I spritzed um, uh, distilled water on all the malt before I did it. The problem with that is that if you don't use it right away, then that malt could get moldy. It'll all clump together and, uh, and get funky. You don't want that. So if you're going to be wetting the malt, you want to use it right away. I don't personally feel that you need to do that, and I and I don't do it when I make uh, smoked malt for my own brewery. I just um, put it in dry and use it after use it right away. I'll use it the next day usually. Okay, I mean, is the theory then that oh, if you if you spritz the malt, and again, it's not getting the malt sopping wet. It's like a light. Right. It's just it's Damn. a little bit. It's it's uh, almost like uh, what's the. The word that they use when they condition malt before they mill it, and the the low O2 guys seem to do that a lot. Uh, yeah, for wet milling, I forget the yeah, I, I forget the German term. I think it, I think it's called it's some, the English version is probably called conditioning the malt yeah. or something. So yeah, and again, so it's just a tiny little bit of water, and but to your point, if you're doing it for yourself, you don't have to bother with that. So you're literally just taking malt from a sack onto screens. Uh, and then screens into the box and starting a fire 20 feet away. Right, exactly. Somehow this feels like the the smoke equivalent of waving a bottle of vermouth at the martini. <laughs> um, yeah. Sideways glance at the vermouth, you know, <laughs> across the room. Exactly. <laughs> um, uh, booze never change how many stories you have. Um <laughs> All right, so you get the, the malt onto the trays, and I'm assuming these trays – are just used for malt. You're not like doing anything funny, like cold smoking bacon. Um, well, you know, sometimes I'll have um, 
a, a smokeathon with a with my club, mm-hmm. and uh, we'll put cheese and we'll put whatever we put hops in there. We put uh, um, but but I've never smoked any actual food f- for consumption. Just just some cheese, some uh, bread maybe. That was kind of fun. The hops. I smoked some hops. I've smoked about a pound of loose leaf hops for Tampa Bay Brewing Company, and they made a smoke beer using those hops, just those hops. It was pretty interesting. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, I've heard of other people trying to do smoked hops, and it's never caught on for some strange reason. Hmm. I don't know. You know, I, I I don't think I ever got a chance to try their beer, so I don't know how smoky it was. Um. All right, but uh, but I mean, again, we're talking. Pretty much food safe, food clean, and I know that somewhere Denny just perked up when you talked about smoking cheese because he got himself a, a pellet smoker recently and has been playing around with doing smoked cheese and smoked. Oh everything. man, S- smoked brie is just phenomenal. I mean, cold smoked brie. I mean, it. You know, my smoker doesn't really get warm enough to do any melting, and even the real soft cheese turns out really good. Nice. Um, all right, so we get malt into the cold box that's 900 feet away from the, the Weber grill. <laughs> now, when you talked earlier about doing it hot, you're talking, okay, well, you get, you know, wood going in there, charcoal, and then adding hickory to it, right? Right. When you're doing this cold smoking, are you still using, like, charcoal as your, your fuel source? Yeah, I, I use regular charcoal, you know, from the big box store. And uh, the wood I use varies. I used to have a... Uh, a lot of dead citrus branches in my backyard mm-hmm. and uh, citrus wood makes really nice smoke. Um, it, it's about as close to beech wood as you can get it, as far as I know. Um, it fooled Ray Daniels when I entered a smoke beer that he judged. Um, <laughs> so that was kind of cool. You know, um, the uh, I've, I've also used a, a lot of the wood that I like to use are, are hardwood fruit trees like apple, cherry, um, I've had um, uh, what is that? Some a friend of mine in Michigan sent me some uh, river birch, I think, or river beech, maybe. Okay, and that was really good. But, no, uh, go ahead. Oh no, go. I was he was it was in large pieces, so I had to figure out a way to cut it into smaller chunks somehow, <laughs> without without um, hurting my hands and fingers with an axe. <laughs> yes, please, please no losing fingers. Um, so we get chunks of wood. We got a charcoal fire going. Uh, are you like soaking the the wood chips or the wood yeah, chunks? Usually, usually, I I have a bucket of water and I put the uh, wood all the wood chips that I plan to use. And uh, you know those uh, packages that you buy at the at the uh, hardware hardware store, the big box store. Mm-hmm. Um, they're about a pound. So. I'll usually use the entire pound. So I'll put all of the wood into a bucket of water. And then every 20 minutes, I'll just replenish the wood chips on top of the charcoal. Right. And so and how long do you let them soak before you start the fire? Or is it literally start the fire, dump the chips in there and then take, take them yeah, as you're going? Yeah, pretty much immediate. Yeah. I don't, I don't, I don't think about it too much ahead of time. There's very little pre-prep in this process, folks. You can see at least in <laughs> Jeff's version of the process. Yes. All right. So, you said a pound every uh, replenishing every twenty minutes, and it sounded how long is the total smoke time then? Uh, about an hour and a half. Hour and um, a half. You burn up about a pound of these chips in an hour and a half or less. All right. Um, and then after that, the malt is the malt's over there in the cold smoker is still sitting for. I mean, do you just take it out immediately after the, all the smoke is gone, or? 
Yeah. Once you used up the wood chips, um, just uh, take each shelf out and put it into a container and then brew with it. Now, you've referenced before that you tend to brew with it the next day. Um, how, how long have you held on to it before? Um, uh, cold smoking, uh, at the most, about a week. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think I've ever gone. I mean, if I'm planning way ahead, a week is a long time. So, <laughs> Okay. And and again, just to remind people, because I, I know we totally forgot to mention up front, the grain is going in uncracked, right? It's Yeah, yeah we did talk about that. Um, yeah, the grain's going in whole, and um, and it comes out smoked, and then you crush it and brew. Okay. So I mean, a relatively straightforward process. Any pitfalls people need to watch out for with cold smoking? No, I don't think so. Um, you know... The only thing, the only problem I've ever had cold smoking is, you know, getting the box sealed up mm-hmm. so that smoke's not escaping. So I have a, a big roll of duct tape, you know, <laughs> on hand so I can, you know, if I see smoke getting out on the bottom of the box instead of up at the top, then I'll, I'll tape that up so I can make sure that the smoke comes in at the bottom and then out at the top. Got to ensure that maximal contact time. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, it takes hot boxing to a whole new level. <laughs> um. All right, and so we got malt, and then go forward, and you just use it as you uh, as you would in a in a regular Roush beer recipe or whatever it is that you're going to make. Now, you had said, I believe, what ten to twenty percent. Yeah, um, although I have used a lot more, and and if I, I personally like a lot more than that, twenty um, percent is my normal um, usage rate, mm-hmm. but I've gone as much as a hundred percent. Most people in competitions don't like that. Fifty percent, half the people in competitions don't like that. So, if you're entering your beer in competitions, it's probably best to stay around twenty-five percent. Well, and you'd mentioned there's the variability factor with malt that you'd buy in the store, right? Um, which is the reason why I always tell people if you're going to make a Roush beer and you get the chance to go and grab a couple of kernels of the the Roush malt or whatever smoke malt they're using, chomp on them for a little bit and get a, a sense of how smoky it is because yeah, if it sits for a year, it's not that smoky anymore. No. Um, with this, since it is such a manual process and kind of, for lack of a less punny way of saying it, fire and forget uh, sort of process here, how, how do you ensure any sort of consistency for yourself so that you know that when you have a recipe that's going to use 20% of your malt or 20% smoked malt, that it's going to be the same or do you not worry about that? I don't worry about it as much as um, some people would. Um, I, I, try, I do adjust from one recipe to the next. You know, if I if I'm if I'm brewing uh, the same kind of beer, you know, a couple of times in a row, um, then I'll adjust it. Um, but for the most part, I just wing it. You know, I'm not I'm not uh, going to be engineering the hell out of this beer. I'm just going to make homebrew. <laughs> So you, I think what you said, uh, Oktoberfest, you just made a, a Pilsner with the, the Trube and yeast yep. uh, from a previous batch. That was pretty uh, good. Yeah. Uh, and you've referenced making smoked porters and all that. Do the rules change for your malt usage between those, or are you just pretty much like generally 20% is where you start and go from there? Well, the, um, you know, 20% is where I start, yeah. I don't, I don't think any less than 20%. 20%. Uh, is going to do you much good. 
Um, when you get much more than 50%, um, then you're going to be turning off a lot of people. So, well, but you, you could look at it also from the point of view, if you go over 50%, then you save yourself beer. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> or for me. Um, <laughs> all right. Now you'd mentioned a couple different, uh, wood types. Um, what's your favorite wood to use when making this? You used a lot of dead citrus, which. For yeah. I, I, I think actually the, the citrus is my all time favorite because it's just so clean. It's, um, you, it's, you don't get any of that. I mean, if you use cherry wood or apple wood, you can actually tell that it was from a fruit tree. Um, you know, either a cherry or apple, but yeah, I don't, you don't get that from a, a citrus tree. The, the tree that used to grow in my backyard was a, a sour tangerine tree. And, uh, it just had it's such a, such a nice smoke tint to it. It was really good. Um, since I don't have that tree anymore, I, I like to use apple wood more than anything else. And now usually are you just, you referenced the big box for earlier. Are you usually just going and buying like the, the chips you'd find in the barbecue section or? Yeah, that's it. So just go buy a pound bag of chips and go make a cold smoke. Now, right. You see, now what this actually makes me want to do is go and set up a day where I set up a box like what you're talking about, put brie on the bottom and put the malt above it. <laughs> yeah. You, th- you think you'd have cheese flavored malt? I can't imagine. <laughs> I always put the cheese on the top myself, you know, because well, uh, the, the smoke rises, you know, so uh, I'm not really sure it's a good idea to put something on the bottom that will affect anything right above it. There you go. It's a good, uh, good point. I, I probably wouldn't put bacon down below, but uh, I was just thinking about <laughs> any sort of, any sort of drippage getting onto the malt, but I didn't think about the smoke rising through the malt. Well, yeah, when I, you, when I put cheese in, I, I don't put it directly on the screen. I put it on a piece of aluminum foil or paper or something. Ah, there we go. Let's yeah. Additional tips. Um, <laughs> all right. So your favorite to use in the past was uh, citrus woods. Nowadays, you're, you're mostly using applewood. Is there a wood that you would recommend people stay the heck away from? Yeah. Um, mesquite. Yeah, me too. (laughs) (laughs) I, you know, I, it, it it might be fine for Texas barbecue, but I don't think it works very well in beer. Well, the experience I had with mesquite was that it's, it's not just the usual sort of smoke phenol. There's almost like a harsh spice to it. Like a, like a, like a burning spice character. It it is really harsh. And, um, and I don't like that. Um, you get sometimes when you enter your smoke beer in competitions, people will remark that it tastes like an ashtray. And I'm really not sure why people are tasting ashtrays, but that's the kind of smoke flavor you get with, uh, with, with that kind of wood. Yeah. It's weird because usually if I, usually if I think I'm tasting something or smelling something that's like an ashtray, I assume somebody used too much black malt as, yeah. as opposed to something smoky. Right. Um, but again, with doing the cold smoke technique, you don't have to worry about possibly burning any of the grain or anything like that. So you're, you're safeguarded from that. You're really just going for that wood character then. Right. Exactly. Okay. So we got a relatively straightforward process for cold smoking, build yourself a box or get yourself an offset smoker. Um, Oh, I forget how much, how much mold are you usually loading up in your box? Oh, I've got seven shelves in there, so I can I can actually smoke um, uh, fifty pounds of malt in there, um, okay. which you know 
when I, when I, when I, um, smoked the malt for, um, swamp head, mm-hmm. I did that twice for them. And, uh, you know, three, three bags of malt takes me all afternoon because you have to kind of load up, you know, the box three times. Right. So up to 50 pounds in your particular setup, uh, you're going to have to explore what you can put into whatever your, your own setup is, including like, if you got like one of those little offset cold smoking chimneys, um, about a pound of wood, 90 minutes for the total smoke time, uh, 10 degrees above ambient, and then use within a week. Seems to be yeah. the, yeah. that seems to be the uh, highlights. That's, that's pretty much sums it up. Yeah. Yep. And then 20% into the recipe as a baseline, and then learn to adjust and find out what your, your flavor preferences are from there. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, anything else? Uh, no, you know, that pretty much covers the, uh, the method methodology and stuff. So, yeah. Awesome. So final word uh, from you before we let you go on about your day selling parts on eBay. Um, (laughs) why should people give smoke beer a chance? I like smoke beer. I think, uh, you know, if you don't like smoke beer, just like you said earlier, more for me, right? I mean, I, I just think it's, you know, it's like if you ever find a really good scotch and you can just like, you don't even have to drink it. You can just, you know, wander around with a glass under your nose and just smell it. And that's the same way I feel about smoke beers. And you, they're, they're, they smell so good. They're delicious. So if, uh, if you don't like smoke beers, that's it's your loss, you know? <laughs> well, and to your point, I find like, particularly if it's a very malt forward beer. So say like, uh, Bach or Meritzen. I find that there's something about the mix of that smoke with the bready, Munich-y, toastiness thing mm-hmm. that just makes something you kind of want to roll around in your mouth. Yeah. Well, I, you know, that another reason I, my, the, the malt that I use most in smoked beers as a smoked malt is going to be Munich. I, I just think it, I think Munich malt adds to every beer and smoked Munich malt adds that much more. There you go. All right. So people, you've heard the the lessons here. It's not that hard of a process to do. You can take it from Jeff because Jeff, how many awards have you won for smoke beer? Um, I, I don't know. I was going to try to count those before we did this little session here, but I, I got kind of lost in my old records. <laughs> it's oodles I mean, and boodles. My first, my first smoke beer was, uh, December 2nd, 1993. And, uh, so that's been 30 years since I've been making smoke beers. <laughs> now, that was your first smoke beer. When did you smoke your own malt for the first time? Do you know roughly? Uh, yeah, here it is. Um, December 3rd, 1995. So two years, two years. And I was, you know, using my, uh, homemade box with citrus wood. So we've got. Nearly 30 years of home smoking experience with 30 years of smoked beer brewing experience. Oodles and boodles and boodles and medals uh, for all this sort of stuff. Uh, yeah. yeah. Take it, take it from Jeff. You can, yeah. you can make your own malt at home or your own smoked malt at home and you can yeah. really enjoy the wonderful smokiness of a good smoked beer. Yeah. It's, it's, it's not like it's rocket surgery, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Man, number one, I envy his kludge together setup. (laughs) (laughs) 
We have some pictures of Jeff's setup in our book, Homebrew All-Stars, and, uh, you know, it, it's really amazing what he's put together there. Uh, number two... Oh, it's it's definitely backwoods engineered. Yeah, definitely so. Uh, and, and number two, I wish that I had a cold smoker so I could try his smoked brie, because that sounds really good. Well, I was going to say, you got the pellet smoker, but it doesn't have a cold smoking option? The only way I could really do it would be like attach a setup like he uses to the smokestack on it, you know? And uh, I'm just, I'm, you know, I'm lazy. What can I say? (laughs) Yes, but somehow I think the lure of smoked brie might overcome your laziness at some point. It it might, it might, but I've been smoking a lot of other kinds of cheese, and I can do that on my hot smoker. I was going to say, that's not the only thing you've been smoking. But uh, what's funny (laughs) is you're... You're not a smoked beer fan, right? No, no, I'm, I'm, I'm really not. Um, every once in a while, I try one again just to see if maybe I'm going to change my mind. And so far, I just don't like it. To me, there are plenty of bad smoked beers out there, the ones that taste and smell like ashtrays. Right. But man, when you get a good smoked beer, it, is, it, it feels like a work of art to me. But that's yeah, well, why that's why there are all these different tastes and flavors. Yep, yep. So... As the wise man once said, smoke them if you got them. <laughs> You've been waiting to say that, haven't you? I have. <laughs> I knew it. Okay, we're going to be right back to wrap things up right after these messages. Experience a one-of-a-kind hop and beer education event. Yakima Chief Hop's 20th Annual Hop and Brew School will be held August 29th through September 1st in Yakima, Washington. Come celebrate the excitement of Yakima Valley's hop harvest. Hop and Brew School is a highly interactive educational event surrounding every brewer's favorite ingredient, hops. Attendees can expect farm and facility tours, presentations from industry leaders, professional panel discussions, and advanced sensory experiences. Registration is open and tickets are limited. Visit hopandbrewschool.com slash Yakima to reserve your spot today. I'll be there and I hope you will too. back it's time for us to get this show over with and get you on the way as always we got a quick tip and something other to keep you moving so denny quick tip quick tip is one we've used before but with my co-pitching experience recently it's time to make it a point again trust but verify i thought that uh, the co-pitching had worked once i expected it to work again it didn't. <laughs> That's my verification. But in order to be even more verified, I intend to try it at least one more time to see what happens. Uh, you know, then I'll have three tries. At least I can uh, take a two out of three. You know, maybe what I should do is I should try and get MB to come talk to us about co-pitching because she's a huge co-pitcher. Well, you know, there's nothing. I mean, at least in my point of view, there's nothing to talk about. Uh, you do it and it either works or it doesn't, right? 
Well, I know, but see what technique she has. You know, I mean, she's a professional microbiologist, after all. Yeah, uh, she could she could walk us through some nonsense. Uh, you know what? I'd be willing to hear some tips. There we go. All right, and of course, something other than beer, because beer is not just the only thing in life. Sometimes you have to eat something too. Um, and so this this week, something other is going to be something culinary. Uh, I have been making. Now, ever since Wild Parrot opened up nearby me, they they have this green sauce, and I've been loving this green sauce. It's absolutely phenomenal stuff, and uh, they very kindly shared with me the recipe. And as it turns out, it looks like it's based on there's a a place in Berkeley. Uh, I think it's called the the Cheese Board. Uh, it was one of the places that opened up just before Alice Water opened up Chez Panisse, and they are famous for this stuff called Poppy Chulo Sauce, and it's absolutely famous and fabulous. And I will tell you what. If between their sauce and the stuff at Wild Parrot and what I've developed uh, with the recipe, this is wonderful. There's a whole world of green sauces out here, but this is just super easy. You take basically a bunch of uh, cilantro, parsley, and a tiny little bit of mint with some garlic, some jalapenos, some serranos if you want the, the real heat kicked into it. Like half of an orange juiced, half of a lemon juiced, a lime juiced, salt, pepper, and olive oil. And you blitz it together in a, a food processor or a blender until it's like the smooth green paste. And then I'll tell you what you do with it. You put it on everything. <laughs> and you just, you have a bowl of ice cream, you put it on it. I have tortilla chips out, I dip them in it. I, you know, my morning breakfast sandwich, when I make an egg sandwich with like a little turkey sausage on it, slather on some green sauce. It's good stuff. And it's easy wow. and it takes you like five minutes. Wow. Wow. It sounds good. Kind of like a, a chimichurri kind of thing, huh? Yeah, except for with the fruitiness from the, you know, from the various citrus and then, you know, a little extra heat, right? I always tend to think of like chimichurri as being more herbal. This has a lot of pepper heat to it. Um, and yeah, but it, I, there's a whole world of green sauces out there uh, that cover a wide spectrum. But you basically take a bunch of herbs, blend them together with some olive oil and other flavors. You'll be happy. <laughs> yeah, really. That's about all it really takes. Yep. So there you go. Go make yourself some green sauce. You know what? I think it's time to get out of here and go do that. Yeah, I think I'm going to go have a sandwich with some green sauce on it. <laughs> Thank you all for listening to Experimental Brewing. You can catch all of our latest adventures and writings by going to our website, which is experimentalbrew.com. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, where we're at EXP Brewing. Oh, I guess that's X now, huh? Not Twitter. Yeah. Uh, we're on Facebook, we're on Instagram, uh, we're all over the place. Like Drew said, uh, we both hang out at the AHA Discussion Forum. You can find me on Facebook quite a bit. Drew is on the Homebrewing subreddit and the Slack Homebrewing channel. You can always write and ask us questions, suggest topics, uh, recipes, experiments, or rant and rave at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. If you want to get a hold of each one of us individually, I'm Denny at experimentalbrew.com, and he's Drew at experimentalbrew.com. And you can send us a text or leave us a voicemail at 626-765-1-ALE, 626-765-1253. So until next time, remember to always brew experimentally. Or brew wacky. And we'll see you on the next episode of Experimental Brewing. (laughs) 